Welcome to another special episode of the Charter Nation podcast, produced by the California Charter Schools Association. I'm your host, Anna Tentakoulis. We have another political heavyweight as our guest on Changemakers, which is our ongoing interview series featuring conversations between CCSA's leader, Myrna Kester-Hone, and influential charter school allies and educators. In this episode, Myrna sits down with former California Governor Jerry Brown. To many, he's a California icon. Born into a political family, Brown was first elected as governor in 1975. In fact, let's go back in time when Jerry Brown was first introduced to the masses on the national news program, 60 Minutes. He's a phenomenon of sorts because as a result of his promising less, he's the most popular governor the state's ever known. And I think people appreciate someone in government being honest with them and telling them that this is the way it's gonna be instead of promising Rosie DeLauro's with no pain and no sacrifice because that's not the way it's gonna be. He secured the governor's seat for a second time in 2011. That's when he rocked the state's K-12 system by establishing a more equitable approach to public school funding statewide. Public schools also now have greater control over how to best utilize education dollars. In addition, a school's performance is now determined by multiple measures, not just a single test score. Through it all, Brown has been a strong supporter of charter public schools. As Oakland mayor in between governorships, Brown established two successful charters of his own, the Oakland Military Institute and the Oakland School for the Arts. Mirna Castrojon, president and CEO of the California Charter Schools Association, sat down with Brown, now 84 years old, at his family's historic ranch to talk about the state of education and the charter school movement. He begins by painting us a picture of his ranch located in Calusa County, just two hours north of Sacramento. You know, one thing I, I feel very proud about is this ranch yes. that you're looking at. My grandmother was born here, and she was born in 1878. And uh, then she left and went to the city and uh, met a guy named Brown, and that was my grandfather. So we've restored the barns. There's real life here. And yes. the many, many descendants of my grandmother and her seven siblings all have come here. Oh. So this is a place of memory and reinvigoration, reinspiration. Uh, or I might say re-inhabitation yes. of, of that journey that my great-grandfather made across the plains in a covered wagon in 1852. So I feel that's the number one legacy. Let's talk uh, a little bit about your, your, your political background and how you view education. What experiences or values have shaped your approach to education in the various public offices that you have? Operated? Well, actually, my uh, thoughts on education are shaped by my own training. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to uh, a public school first and then West Portal in San Francisco and then to uh, St. Brendan's, then St. Ignatius, then Santa Clara. And then I was uh, trained to be a Jesuit. Yes. for almost four years. And the Jesuits uh, are teachers. They run many universities and high schools. So in that preparation, uh, there was a lot of talk, uh, a lot of discussion, and a lot of literature. Uh, one book that I, I uh, came across, uh, Paideia, which is a, a very famous book written in the 30s by Warner Jaeger in German. Mm -hmm. and it's about the uh, 
Greek uh, way of of bring of teaching young people, mm -hmm. and it's a three volume work. It's kind of a classic, which yes. I never quite finished when I was in the Jesuits, but I have that book along with many others. Uh, deciding to be a Jesuit is a, a way of life which involves teaching. It involves mm -hmm. uh, being a missionary, trying to convert. And I see teaching uh, in a similar light. Uh, students come to the teacher and they need to be uh, inspired, mm -hmm. or uh, I would even say uh, in a more old fashioned way, the school, the teacher needs to inculcate virtues yes. and good habits. Mm -hmm. In fact, the definition of virtue is a good habit. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, it's my early training. And then uh, two books that really have affected my thinking. One was Compulsory Miseducation by Paul Goodwin, <laughs> which was a that. real attack on the institution of schooling. And the other was Deschooling by Ivan Illich, who became a friend of mine. Both those probe more deeply into what learning is and what can be institutionalized in the learning and what can't mm -hmm. and what rests uh, with the individual, the relationship. And uh, during my time on the community college board and uh, as governor, I've been very interested and I've come to the, the view that all these rules, you know, the, the 10 volumes or more of the education code are, are trying to uh, micromanage uh, the teacher and the classroom. Mm -hmm. And it really doesn't work that way. And so uh, I, I'm very impressed with the idea that learning is an individual activity, yes. but in the teaching, a mentor, uh, someone who creates a relationship. It's a deeper relationship that has to be created. So at the end of the day, it's the teacher and it's the, the student. Uh, and then, of course, the school with the principal, the leader, um, uh, that's important. But all these uh, mechanisms of accountability, all these rules that are attempting to prevent fraud and misbehavior of one kind or another, uh, most of them are counterproductive. Yeah. Uh, and we, at my charter school, uh, we spent an enormous amount of uh, person power mm -hmm. inputting. Uh, so there's a role for data, there's a role for accountability, but the, the vision has to be very clear. Yeah. It's the teacher, the students in the classroom, and the leadership at the school. And all these People, whether they're on a school board, whether they're a superintendent, much less if they're a legislature or a governor, they're very removed. And all they can do is send emails, yes. formulate regulations, send uh, trustees mm -hmm. and uh, impact teams to visit. But they can't substitute for the teacher in the classroom. I love and, that. And I think that's the, the genius of the charter school mm -hmm. is to welcome a whole range of possibilities and let the local school decide. Yes. But that becomes intolerable uh, to, the, to the leadership, mm -hmm. uh, whether in the legislature or the governor's office. They all want to micromanage. They all think that they, from hundreds of miles away, can affect the classroom. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, other than sending money, uh, they really can't. And my uh, strong support of charter schools was to have an outlet for uh, the creativity of parents, of teachers, or uh, in the case of charter schools, even entrepreneurs yes. who really care about education. Let them do it and do it in different ways. Whereas the public school system could be creative and it's supposed to listen to charter schools as part of the law, but they tend to be more monolithic, yes. more regulatory, uh, and, and less human in the interaction. 
uh, it's like somebody walking in the high wire mm -hmm. uh, has to have their hands free. They hold the pole, but they got to move the hands back and forth. They can't be constrained. Yes. You can't regulate uh, the person walking on the high wire. Uh, he or she has to do it uh, by a total body involvement mm -hmm. and engagement of balance and purpose. Well, that's what has to happen in the classroom. The teacher has to be free. And of course, there's many frameworks uh, curricula sure. and uh, teaching approaches, but the, the the work, the reality is in that classroom. And therefore, the more that we uh, devolve authority close to the classroom, uh, the more real and effective it will be. And that's the whole essence, uh, what I see of the charter school movement. I couldn't agree more, Governor. So you've touched on these beautiful concepts of neutrality, of relationality, of putting human beings at the center of what this whole enterprise is. How did that shape the way you formed uh, your two schools, uh, the Oakland School of the Arts and the Oakland Military Institute? Well, one time, I've only taught one class mm -hmm. in my entire life. And that's when I was in the seminary. I, uh, I was instructed to go teach catechism mm -hmm. in San Jose, just one class for one hour. And I, abysmal failure. I could not keep the kids interested at all. They were not <laughs> it's like hard to believe. They were not interested in catechism. And I couldn't interest them. So I, I appreciate the skill and the attention-getting necessity of engaging the kids. So that, that's, what, uh, that, that, that's where I kind of got my ideas on schooling. And now when it came to the charter schools, uh, I thought of uh, taking over the schools uh, as the mayor. That, mm -hmm. But then I looked and I did this survey and I found that people were not going to support a mayoral takeover of the schools. Mm -hmm. uh, people love their school, uh, their school representative, and their democracy. Yes. So I compromised and I said, okay, I'm going to put three members. There are seven members now. I'll add three of my appointee. And as it turned out, a, a lot of the problems that the Oakland schools were having, they would blame on the fact that the mayor's appointee were disruptive, mm -hmm. allegedly mm -hmm. disruptive. So it became a point of contention rather than a point of uh, creativity yes. and, and collaboration. So I, I then I saw, okay, I can't affect the school district. And in fact, the school district is a democracy in itself. Yes. It's elected, so mm -hmm. it's got to run itself. The mayor really has no business uh, trying to second guess uh, the elected school board. So, okay, I got that. So the only, uh, only other alternative if I want to have an impact they all talk about education mayors. Mm -hmm. So I got to create my own school. Yes. So I created the military school was the first idea I had. And I did that in part because of my Catholic education mm -hmm. where I appreciated the authority, yes. the tradition, and also the caring uh, that I saw uh, in my own uh, Catholic school uh, upbringing. Mm -hmm. yes. So uh, military fit that. So that was the idea that I thought the structure uh, and the inspiration uh, and the ceremony uh, the camaraderie would be helpful for kids in Oakland to do better. So that was the military school. Well, after I created that, and by the way, it was rejected uh, by the school board right. who said, we're not having a military school in Oakland. Uh, they said that would be like having a Ronald Reagan museum in Berkeley. And then everybody <laughs> laughed. Uh, so then I went to the county and unanimously they rejected the charter. Yes. Then I had to go to the, state, to the state and unanimously they approved it. Uh, with the governor actually standing next to me uh, at the charter uh, uh, argument that I made yeah. myself. So we, we got that. And uh, then I thought, well, my goodness, this is a military school. As a politician, I got to have a broader 
uh, approach than that. So I said, I'm, I'm going to create something different. I'm going to create an art school mm -hmm. so I could have the military on the one end and the art on the other. Absolutely. And the art was all about creativity, spontaneity. It was really very different than the idea of the military school, sure. but they were both valid. And as it turned out, uh, the art school, they both were very successful, but very different reasons. Very different. And so there they are. That's why I, I did it, because I wanted to have an impact on education. And I couldn't uh, understand how that could happen, mm -hmm. uh, working from the mayor's office to the elected school board. Governor, you just shared a beautiful description of the aims of the two very different schools. I do want to point one thing out, though. Just uh, the, the Oakland community has benefited so much. Um, uh, from having those two schools in the community, not just because of their programs, but because you really opened up opportunities in the arts with a values-driven school like OMI for students who don't typically have access to those experiences. The most direct beneficiaries of those two schools are underprivileged children who more often than not end up in programs that are least creative, yeah. <laughs> most compliance driven, uh, less mindful of this very human notion that you've talked about, like the mutuality, the respect for uh, a program that works for them. How did those experiences of establishing those schools as you came back to the governor's office uh, in the 2010s shape your orientation towards your education policy and also how you treated charter schools as a governor? Uh, well, uh, just taking the last, I was very concerned that charter schools not be crowded out uh, for political reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a very strong uh, supporter of uh, both the teachers' unions, CTA and uh, California Federation of Teachers. Now, in recent years, uh, there's been much less acceptance of the role of charter schools, and there's a certain intolerance which doesn't make any sense. In the, in the beginning, uh, this was experimental. The American Federation of Teachers was supportive of Absolutely. charter schools. So now, like everything else in our politics, it's more polarized. Yes. Uh, and I'm not polarized. I want to see uh, a healthy union, but I also want to see a diversity of opportunities. We all talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Well, charter schools are the essence of that. And when people say, oh, these are privatized, corporatized. Well, I don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the Brown Act. We have all this accountability. We're always, we got the local uh, control uh, uh, plan. We got our LCAP. We got this. We got yes. the SART. We got the WASC. The, everything. It's so much accountability, so much public uh, into our business, and it's a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So, and I know the people uh, that I'm dealing with, they're totally dedicated to the kids. And, and so the same thing that the teachers union want. So I just would wish that they would uh, take uh, a more benign effort and realize that there's not one way. Yes. Uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to get to the goal and charter schools play a role. And it also, I think, fits within my philosophy of subsidiarity, yes, which talk a little bit uh, again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm some uh, super Catholic, which I'm not. I'm much more <laughs> of a free thinker for sure. But what we learned in my early upbringing was that the family is the central institution way before the state. Mm -hmm. It's the family. And uh, the idea of subsidiarity is the institution closest to uh, the issue, the problem, the people. That's the one that has primary responsibility. So uh, that's my notion that it's mother and father, it's the neighborhood, it's the church, yes. and it's the local school. Right. The local school, uh, not dictated to from 500 miles away 
or from 3,000 miles away because right. the feds have their own their set own of rules ideas. that are that never stop. Um, and they don't realize that every time you make a rule, then there's another rule. You have accountability. You have the, the revenue streams, the computer codes that, that have to identify revenue streams, they're endless. And there are very few people that can figure out how to do it. And we've had difficulty getting proper accounting. Right. So we spend too much of our time, a, va a really big amount of time on not anything to do with teaching. Yes. It's all, it's this accountability, it's finance, it's compliance. And that this is really uh, a noxious evolution. And I would hope that legislators be aware they've, go they've gone overboard. And like everything else, something is good and good until it isn't good. It isn't, and there has yeah. to be a balance. It's not more of something, it's the balance. It's the optimum. We've never had more rules covering our schools in the history of the human race. Right. It's right here, one rule after another. Okay, so we, we do need some basic rules. You have to have accountability. You have to uh, go after people that do wrong things. Uh, but the key is talent, training teachers, training them after they're in the classroom, apprenticeships, paying people decent salaries, but letting them do their work as they, as good professionals know how to do it. So that's always, uh, we have to look for the wise path. And that's why I think local control is so important, even when it's wrong. Because right now we have absolute state mandates everywhere and we have lots of failures. That is um, right. Most of the kids are not on grade level. Uh, we have a lot of failure out there. They never, people want to talk about everything, but getting kids to learn the basics. So there's plenty to learn, but it doesn't take a bunch of rules. That's it right. takes skilled people imparting their skills to others who then impart it uh, to the students. It, it's very simple what it is. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Governor, um, what advice would you give to the next generation, the new generation of charter leaders and uh, the movement in general? You point out the, the, the very uh, a stark reality of a lot of political opposition, a very polarized moment, and coming out of a devastating, once in a generation, maybe two, pandemic, where education and learning loss is really at the center of what might make a future possible for California. What advice would you give our movement? I can, I can say honestly, uh, now that I started this school, military school, 21 years ago, uh, but I've only been on the board uh, for four years, mm -hmm. and I've learned so much and it's so difficult to uh, operate a charter school. I mean, there's so many rules, the, the money, the pensions, the human relations, the yeah. discipline, the, yeah. the curricula, the teachers. It, it's quite challenging. So I, I think charters have to understand what they're doing and what the job is. And it's not easy. This is not for the faint of heart. Uh, that's why I don't think the charter movement can grow very easily because it takes money and it takes talent. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and I've learned a lot. So learning the, the mechanics and the spirit of, of schooling. And then secondly, to be into the community and let people know uh, your good works. So let the light of your charter school be seen in the community. Be active. Uh, be everywhere so people can know who you are. And don't be afraid to uh, show up at the school board and, and show what you are because they are good. Not to say that there aren't some bad charter schools. They're bad public schools. Absolutely. They're bad union leaders. They're yeah. good union leaders. It's, we're all uh, flawed. And the answer is not just endless regulation or some kind of imperious control, but it's to recognize freedom within structure on a decentralized basis. 
Well, we thank you so much on behalf of the entire California charter movement. We've just celebrated our 30th anniversary. We're starting our fourth decade. Does feel like we have some headwinds, but uh, we do strongly believe in the same thing you believe in this, the centrality of like being of service in our communities at the, at the nearest level, the most proximate level to where the suffering and the opportunity both lie. And we thank you so much for your steadfast support um, in so many different ways in the different offices that you've held in California. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, it's my pleasure. I've enjoyed every bit of it. That was four-term California Governor Jerry Brown speaking with CCSA's president and CEO, Myrna Casterhone, at his family's ranch in Calusa County, just north of Sacramento. He's also the founder of two charter public schools in Oakland, the Oakland Military Institute and the Oakland School for the Arts. CCSA recently honored Brown with the Heart Vision Award for Supporter of the Year because of his commitment to public school kids across the state. Next time on Charter Nation, we talk personalized learning and the role it plays in K-12 education. Our special guest is Cameron Curry, the man behind the Classical Academies in San Diego, one of the most successful non-classroom-based charter public schools in the state. Learning isn't tied to a classroom, it's actually tied to the community. And moms, dads, grandparents, aunts, uncles, guardians, all play a part in the academic experience of that student. That's next time on Charter Nation. And just a reminder, you can listen to past episodes by going to CCSA's website. That's ccsa.org. And while you're there, check out our blog, which features stories highlighting great charter public schools across the Golden State. Until next time, I'm Anna Tentopoulos. Thank you so much for listening.